Well, good morning. morning. It's so good to be with you guys today. Um, At this time, we're going to release the kids. So three and up through Story Kids, through middle school. So our volunteers are waving their hands in the back. So kids, go ahead in the back. Also, I want to thank you guys that are joining us online today. We are so glad that y'all are here with us. Okay, we are in the second week of a sermon series where we are working through the book of Acts. We are working through the eight chapters in the book of Acts. And by the way, if we haven't met, my name is Cale, and I'm the new campus director here. So what we're seeing in the book of Acts is we're seeing the birth, we're seeing the start of this movement called Christianity. We are seeing the unstoppable progress of the gospel that happens afterwards. We're calling this series, Keep Jesus Weird. And we stole that slogan. Uh But when you tend to follow Jesus, things tend to get a little weird. We stole it from Keep Austin Weird. I just want you to know it pains my Aggie heart. (laughs) to say that every time. Anyways, um, before we get into the second chapter of Acts, I want to talk about Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. And for centuries, the church has celebrated this day as basically an introduction into the Holy Week. So it's the first day that we are going into Easter week. What we do is we remember when the people laid down their palm branches, they laid down their cloaks off their back as they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. The gospel writers tell us that crowds lined the street and what they did was they lined the road with almost this red carpet, right? Palms, cloaks, this red carpet welcoming the king into the city. We have to think they were a little bit confused though because Jesus came in on a donkey, right? They had to be a little confused because they thought that their savior, their Messiah was gonna come and have this physical complete deliverance of the Roman empire back to Israel. But they probably put it in the back of their minds, hey, he's coming in with humility. He's coming in pretty meek, but then he's going to take over the government. But here's what they were doing. They were singing praises. They were rejoicing. They were welcoming this king, this Messiah into the city. In the gospel of Matthew, it says that in their joy, they laid down their palm branches and they laid down their cloaks. Palm Sunday is known as a joyous day. In their joy, that reminds me of a parable It's in the Gospel of Matthew. We see this man walking along and he finds this treasure in a field. And what he does is says in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has and goes and buys up this field. We also see in Hebrews, what that says, what that author says is that in Jesus's joy, he bore the cross of shame. It's this radical joy that is the main characteristic of a spirit-filled life. But this was a really big problem for the Pharisees, 
for the religious authorities at the time. Not necessarily the rejoicing, not the praising God, not the laying down of the palms and the cloaks, but it was what they were saying. And here's what they were saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This wasn't just any other saying. This was Psalm 118. This was a chapter that those Pharisees, those rulers definitely had memorized. And this verse was only reserved for the coming savior, for the coming Messiah. Just a breath before this verse, we see the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And then it launches into the day of salvation, which again, only the Messiah, only the savior can initiate. So the Pharisees, were really angry. I mean, big mad. They were mad. And what they said to Jesus was, hey, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Do you see the difference here between these two groups? Do you see the difference in their responses? The whole crowd of Jesus' followers, they were joyful. They were praising God. They were welcoming the king into the city But did you see what the Pharisees, did you hear what the Pharisees called Jesus? They called him teacher. They still don't understand who Jesus is. They said, rebuke your disciples. They were still barking orders at him. They were still trying to exercise their authority over him. They didn't realize that Jesus is now the ultimate authority. And they were petrified of losing their authority. And then Jesus, he says the most Jesus thing ever. Um, Only the son of God can say this, but here's what he says. He says, if they keep quiet, then the stones will cry out. What authority is this? That's the Jesus that I serve. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that no matter what, God will be praised. We see this juxtaposition. We see the escalating joy of the masses against this festering anger, this festering fear of the Jerusalem elite. But guess what? Those disciples, Jesus' followers that were praising God and rejoicing, they were about to have a problem too. But it wasn't the salvation that was the problem. It was the way Jesus would bring about the salvation. It wasn't that he didn't fulfill what they wanted. It was how he did it. Has God ever answered something in your life, but you were disappointed in how he did it? The people, they wanted salvation. They wanted restoration. They wanted deliverance, which means they wanted the Messiah to come and have this complete physical powerful takeover, physical takeover of the Romans. They wanted to be free from oppression, but they wanted it to be by force. They had learned in their history book that God came down in plagues. He parted seas. They wanted Jesus to do that same thing. They wanted a ruler, they wanted a judge, and they wanted a king, but they wanted him to do it their way. How many times do we ask God to do something, but in only the very specific way that we want it done? 
hey, that's not asking God, that's telling God. That's treating God the exact same way that the Pharisees treated Jesus. Instead, what the crowd got was on Friday morning, they got a bloodied man who was rejected by the authorities, who was standing with the common criminals waiting for execution. They wanted an incomparable king, but what kind of king goes to a cross? What kind of king goes willingly to a cross? No, no, no. Kings, they send people to the cross. They wanted their oppressors on a cross. And that's when the sounds, that's when the chants of the crowd, they quickly started to change. From blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. How quickly we change our tune. And let's don't think that we would have reacted any different. We have this phrase that we use here. It's called chronological snobbery. The Pharisees, Jesus' followers, they had their problems and so do we. None of us are righteous. And thankfully, Jesus came to save us all. The Romans, they used crucifixion to quell rebellions, not to start them. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. We saw last week that the start of Christianity, we saw the purpose of Christian life and how to wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't worry though, if you were here last week, you remember, I'm not gonna ask you to turn to your neighbor and say you're this weird, crazy evangelist. I'm not gonna do that. Um, But we are gonna talk about Acts 2, and that's when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. So it might get weirder than that. But what is Pentecost? It's a great question. Pentecost happened on a Jewish holiday. It was one of three Jewish feasts that called for a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So every Jewish family in the known world would make a trek, they'd make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It got its name, Pentecost, which means 50th. That was 50 days after the Passover. So 50 days after the Lord's Supper, after Jesus' crucifixion, but it was a feast of harvest. And there's symbolism there. It's kind of how God does things. He uses symbolism. Do you remember when he was recruiting his disciples? They were fishermen. They were all on the boat. He said, no, no, no. You're not going to be fishermen anymore. You're going to fish for men. The Feast of Harvest kind of had the same symbolism. Pentecost, it had significance, and it was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was to be a great harvest for the world. And that's exactly what happened. So let's jump into the text. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If not, don't worry, the text is going to be on the screen behind me. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. All right, who are my folks that can relate to these people who said they had too much wine, right? I'll get to y'all in a second. Oh, but this is pretty wild, right? Like, this is pretty crazy. Even for my mystical brothers and sisters in here, this is pretty wild. And if you're anything like me, you get a little skeptical when we hear about the Holy Spirit coming in tongues of fire, coming on these guys with them speaking 17 different languages to 17 different nations. Or if you're new to this Jesus thing, this is exactly what you want to stay away from. You've seen some people at some point on TV or on social media abuse the spirit and just try to manipulate people. But just because some bad guys abuse the spirit doesn't mean that the spirit is bad for the rest of us. Listen, Pentecost, it wasn't meant to be repeated. Pentecost was meant to be perpetuated. We are to perpetually ask the Spirit to come and move in our lives. I want to look at the two immediate responses from the crowd, though. Some asked questions saying, what does this mean? And some just wrote them off completely and said, oh, they're drunk. Do you see the difference here? Both of these groups are skeptical, but they go about it in very different ways. There are different ways to be skeptical and there are different ways to have doubts. We're a church who embraces questions. We embrace being skeptical. We embrace having our doubts. But did you see the difference? It was their motives. It was their hearts. It was the root of it. Some were amazed and perplexed and some just made fun of them. Let's be people who always ask questions, but let's make sure that our hearts are in the right place. It's good to ask questions when we don't understand something, but it is really dangerous to dismiss something that we don't fully understand. There's a kind of doubt that actually wants answers and there's a kind of doubt that doesn't want any answers. So let's ask some questions. For a lot of us, the Holy Spirit inspires a lot of questions. So we're gonna work through three questions and try to answer them real quick. What or who is the Holy Spirit? Why and how does the Holy Spirit come? And what does it mean to be spiritually alive? All right, first question. What or who is the Holy Spirit. Before we answer that, let's answer what the Holy Spirit is not. The Holy Spirit is not some created thing. It is not created out of thin air. The Spirit is not an it, he's a person. The Spirit is not friendly, he's fearsome. 
He's not what some of you are thinking right now. I think we have a picture. My boy, Casper, the friendly Holy Ghost, that's not him. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Son. Don't believe me? Let's look in the Bible. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the very first chapter, it says, in the beginning. In the very second verse of the Bible, it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in the beginning, we have the Father and the Spirit. But there was also someone else with them. Let's jump to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It starts the exact same way as Genesis does. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it said, the Word became flesh. Who's the Word? Jesus, exactly. So we see that in the beginning, there was the Father, there was the Son, and there was the Holy Spirit. Spirit. God has always been in community with himself. That's why we crave community so much, because we were made in the image of God. In other words, before creation, God could relate to himself in two different ways. He could know himself through the Son, and he could love himself through the Spirit. Now, my business folks in here already know what you're going to ask me. You say, all right, but hey, who reports to who, right? What's the hierarchy here? But that's just not how God works. It's not an ascending or descending power, but they act according to their person. So the father acts as the father, the son acts as the son, and the spirit acts as the spirit. Here's what it's not. I think we have a Venn diagram. It's not this. It's not the father the Son, and the Spirit, and they all have a little bit of God together. It is not this. It looks more like this. So God is fully the Father, he's fully the Son, and he's fully the Spirit. So he's three distinct persons. So we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Spirit all together in one. The Father initiates, the Son executes, and the Spirit animates all things. In order for us to know the Father better, he sent his Son. In order for us to know the Son better, he sent his Spirit, but you can't know one without the other. God has a mission, and it's that Jesus points to the Father, and that the Spirit points to the Son. The spirit is never self-referential. He never points to himself. The spirit is always self-deferential. He always points to Jesus. I said six weeks ago that we as a church are being called to open a new campus. I'm doubling down on that. I'm saying we are led by the Holy Spirit to open a new campus, and that has very little to do with us. And that has everything to do with being a witness and pointing to Jesus, because that's what the Spirit does. All right, second question. Why and how does the Spirit come? 
We saw very clearly last week in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, here's what it says. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Everything that we are going to read in Acts revolves around that statement. What we see over and over and over again is that the Holy Spirit comes in power. Those people become the witnesses of God for the good news of the gospel in their community first, then in their city, then in the country, and then in the world. And that's how the gospel started multiplying, started spreading to the point where you and I are in this room today. Now those guys weren't so crazy, right? Now those guys maybe didn't have too much wine. But the spirit always comes in power. A wise man once told me that when the Bible repeats itself, you better listen. The power of the spirit is repeated over 90 times in the New Testament. The Bible authors are repeating this for a reason. But hey, here's where we get in trouble. When we try to put that power on our backs, that was my biggest problem. That was my biggest hindrance because that's what the world tells us, right? Hey, take the power back over your life. Hey, take authority back over your life. Do you, do what makes you happy, right? Speak your truth, whatever your truth is, speak your truth. But you know what that makes it really difficult to do? It makes it really difficult to surrender to Christ. And when we surrender to Christ is when we actually have freedom and that's when we receive the Holy Spirit. Listen, God meets us where we are. Even more than that, he meets us where we are spiritually. Have you ever felt convicted before? That's the Spirit. Life with the Spirit is different because he confronts us with our sins. It's not to make us feel bad about ourselves. He's just melting away this pride. He's melting away these masks, saying that, hey, we don't need to just look cool. We don't need to look like we have it all together. He is making us know, or he's letting us know that we are forgiven, we are redeemed, and we are loved by God. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the comforter. But look, there's something very comforting about coming clean. We're all about keeping up our appearances, all about using these masks that we have to protect our true identity, but life without conviction and contrition is like a prison. It's like a prison of secrets and lies. The Spirit convicts us, but only for the purpose of restoring us. But listen, the most important thing that happens here is not that the Spirit has come. That's really important. That's really significant. But the most important thing that happens is that Jesus is exalted. The glorification of Jesus brought the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. Wherever Jesus is glorified, the Holy Spirit comes. We don't have to prove ourselves to be righteous. We don't have to prove anything at all. But wherever and whenever Jesus is glorified, the Spirit will come. And finally, what does it mean 
to be spiritually alive. Jesus says that we're born of the Spirit. The Spirit transforms us to be better than we were. The first Christians to receive the Spirit, they loved each other so much. They cared about each other so much. They cared about God so much that non-Christians, they thought they were having a party. Right? They thought they were drunk. If the world looks at us and they don't see a party, we're doing it wrong. If the world looks at us and they don't see this transformative joy, this transformative freedom, then we're doing it wrong. If they look at us and they say, oh, those guys might have had too much wine, we're doing it wrong. If the Holy Spirit transforming your heart still makes you nervous, I get it. Because the Holy Spirit will change your life. You will find yourself thinking about God more. You'll find yourself falling in love with Jesus more. You'll also find yourself thinking about those things that just don't matter a whole lot less. The Holy Spirit doesn't make us weird. He makes us whole. He transforms you into the person that you were created to be. All right, let's talk about my daughter for a second. Did y'all really think I was going to go a whole sermon without talking about my daughter? Um, Oh, my goodness. If you forgot how cute she was, she's up there. She's waiting for Easter already. Okay, whenever my wife and I found out that we were pregnant, that she was pregnant, um, we decided to not find out the gender. It was really exciting for us. What we did was we uh, we played the name game. Y'all played that before? But the name game quickly turned into figuring it out all the people that we disliked in our childhood. So we're we're crossing names off, like we got like two left. Um, Anyways, but what my wife was doing was she was constructing this idea of this perfect gender reveal in the delivery room. So she was thinking that, hey, this baby was gonna come out glistening. I was gonna say, you know, the gender is, she was gonna be looking great. Um, None of those things happened. But I kid you not, my wife almost convinced me to put confetti in my pockets. Blue confetti in this pocket and pink confetti in this pocket. In the delivery room, whenever the baby popped out, I was to throw confetti of what gender the baby was. I give you my word, that is a true story. Thank God we did not do that. Um, Anyways, fast forward a little bit. It's 11.45 p.m., and if you've had kids, you know it's like a war zone in there. Okay, so I'm getting prepped. I knew it was going to go a little bit differently than what she had in mind. The nurses prepped me to say, hey, okay, when she pops out, we're going to, you know, display the baby, and you're going to announce the gender. So I was ready. Baby pops out, and I froze. (laughs) My wife's like, hey, what is it? What is it? The nurse is saying, hey, what is it? What is it? but the umbilical cord was wrapped between her legs. I said, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if that was a thing. I didn't, know, like, I didn't know what it was. The nurses get a little frustrated and they open up the legs. And I say, okay, that's a girl. We have a daughter. <laughs> it was a beautiful moment. <clears throat> but that's when the room went silent. The nurses, they grabbed our daughter and they took her over to a table and she quickly became blue. 
She couldn't breathe. The nurses, they would put tubes down her throat and try to get her to breathe. My wife saying, hey, how is she? Is she okay? Is she okay? And I didn't know. And then the nurses, they said, we need to take her to the NICU immediately. And what they do is they put your baby in a clear box and they wheel her down the hallway and I lost it. I lost it. And that's when I prayed the most desperate prayer I have ever prayed in my life. And I said, God, give her the breath in my lungs. God, if that's what it takes, give her the breath in my lungs. And the spirit met me there. And he says, she doesn't need your breath. I have already given you your breath. I'm gonna give her something so much greater. That breath, that's my spirit. That breath that I gave Adam in the garden, that breath that I breathed the last on the cross, that's the breath that I am going to give her. And that breath, that spirit, that is what gives life. And I'm not talking about earthly life. I'm talking about eternal life. The Holy Spirit brings life beyond life. For as long as I can remember, I've been a so-called Christian. But for most of that time, I was spiritually dead. I didn't want to accept, I didn't want to receive the spirit of God. That was way too radical for me. I followed my own ways. I followed the ways that the world told me. I chased my natural desires doing whatever my body, whatever my mind wanted. I had zero self-control. I was dead. In Ephesians chapter two, the apostle Paul writes, but God's mercy is so abundant and his love for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ. The Holy Spirit brought me to life and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. It gives life. But the only way that we can be spiritually alive is if Jesus is alive. That welcoming party killed Jesus' body, but the Holy Spirit wasn't done. In fact, the Holy Spirit was just getting started. After they put Jesus' ministry in the grave, the Holy Spirit gave birth to this movement that we call the body of Christ. Listen, the spirit is the spark that lit the church on fire and it's the spark that lights us on fire. Let's don't wait until next week to be alive. Let's don't wait until next week to live like Jesus is alive. Hey, spoiler alert, Easter's next week and Jesus is alive. But let's be spiritually alive today. Let's be joyful and rejoice Today, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, whose spirit dwells in us because Jesus is alive. Will y'all pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your spirit. God, that it moves 
in such a way that there's no mistaking it's from you. God, your spirit is so powerful. Jesus, it moves us. God, wherever your name is glorified, the spirit comes. Let us glorify your name today. God, let us be a people who ask questions and want answers. But God, let's let you answer those questions. God, your spirit comes in such a powerful way that we know that you're here. God, it's what you promise us. And you made us the body of Christ. God, let us be spiritually alive this week. As we go into this week, as we celebrate Easter, let's do it right now. Let's don't wait. Because you are alive. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.